All right. Well, over the last couple weeks, we have stayed in Acts 2, examining the first gospel sermon that was ever given. After the powerful arrival of the Holy Spirit and all its accompanying signs and wonders, people began to ask, what's this all about? What's going on here? And with that, Peter steps up to offer an explanation that the signs and wonders that they beheld are the heralds of the last days written about by the prophets. He then goes on to offer the first Kerygma sermon, Kerygma being the distillation of the message of the apostles, what they proclaim. Um, and in this first Kerygma sermon, he explains how everything that happened to Jesus in life and death and resurrection and glorification was God's plan. God intended it for ha to happen. And he predicted all of this in Scripture, in the prophets and in the writings of the Old Testament. And that the guilt of his death was shared by all humanity. That is the nature of the gospel message, the charisma message, uh, as presented by the apostles. And he ends on a climactic note. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord because Jesus has been raised up to supreme power and authority at the right hand of God, executing judgment and pouring out his spirit on his people, as predicted by a lesser Lord, a guy you might be familiar with named Old King Davy. But along with Lord, Jesus is also Messiah. He uses his Lordship to save and to redeem humans. In a lot of ways, the Sermon of Peter's were the birth screams of the infant church, the battle cry and the rallying call and the thesis statement known as the Kerygma. And as Peter stood that day in the freshly cleaned temple, a stone's throw from both David's familiar and corpse-filled tomb, as well as Jesus' less familiar and corpse-less tomb, as he redefined for all of Israel and all of humanity what truth and salvation and God's presence really looks like, even there in the shadow of the Holy of Holies, the temple, the home of God. As Peter preached this first Christian sermon with the other apostles united at his back, he made a very large impact. The Holy Spirit's arrival was a very small pebble that kicked off history's largest landslide. No other movement in history can rival the impact of the Christian church. It contained more power and authority than the great empires of the world, the Roman, the British empires, the Ottoman empires. It contained within it more freedom and openness than the democratic movement. It contained more value and worth than the Industrial Revolution. And it contained more wisdom and truth than the Age of Enlightenment. Some of the major movements of our time pale in comparison with this, the birth of the Church. Nothing in history compares to the impact of those 12 men and various other followers being met by the Holy Spirit and delivering the basics of their faith to a curious crowd of Jews. But here's the thing. The sermon given by Peter would never have had the impact mentioned above without what happens next. Because as compelling and as reasonable and as motivational as his sermon was, it would have been incomplete to his captivated audience had they not asked the most crucial question that anyone can ask in light of the charisma. And then they received a powerfully succinct answer from the apostles. And that crucial question which must still be asked 2,000 years later if the kingdom is to continue advancing among his people, is this. What should we do? What should we do? Where do we go from here? What next? What does this mean? If this really was God's plan since the beginning for Jesus to, 
to live and die and be raised up. If that really was God's plan since the beginning, and if our hands really are still red from the blood guilt of the Son of Man's execution, and if Jesus really is both Lord and Messiah, then what do we do now? Where do we go from here? What does life look like if the crucified and risen Jesus is our personal and communal Master and Savior? Well, all those answers and more in the thrilling conclusion of the first Gospel sermon. Let's read Acts 2, verses 36 to 47. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, to show that you have received forgiveness for your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And a better translation is, a, a I should just use a better translation. But a better translation is, this promise is for you and to your children and even to those who are far away. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracle, miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. What next? Immediately after every major sports championship, and especially after the Super Bowl, reporters storm the field and get in the faces of jubilant and exhausted athletes who just want to celebrate with their teammates and embrace their families. And these reporters ask these athletes the same stupid questions every time. Hey, Mr. Quarterback, you just won the Super Bowl! What are you going to do now? It's so ridiculous because the answer is always the same from every champion athlete since the beginning of time. Probably someone asked the gladiators in Rome who survived being mauled by targeters, so what are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to get that little olive crown that Caesar has for me, and I'm going to enjoy the moment with my team, and then I'm going to get my arms sewn back on, and then I'm going to decide what I'm going to do after letting it sink in for a while. Super Bowl winners aren't thinking about off-season trades or hometown parades or contract negotiations or retirements. All they're thinking about is hugging a 300-pound linesman, getting their hands on a trophy, and popping champagne with the team in the dressing room. The last thing on their mind in that moment is what comes next. But not so in Acts 2. Having seen signs and wonders and having learned of their guilt and the death of an innocent king, and having heard of God's plan to enthrone Jesus as Lord and Messiah, the crowd begs to know what comes next. It's the opposite of a Super Bowl champion. These, these listeners to the first sermon, they have urgency about their immediate future. Desperation, even. As F.F. Bruce writes, he says, If they had refused the one in whom all their hope of salvation rests, what hope of salvation would be left to them now? 
if they had denied and actually executed the one in whom they have any hope of salvation, then where does that leave them now? And so we reach the third and final aspect of the charisma, the gospel message of the early church leaders, and that is a call to respond. This is what happened to Jesus. You're a part of it. The Bible predicted this. He is now Lord and Savior. Now you need to do something about that. A sermon is just a speech unless it compels or encourages or convicts its hearers to change. Sometimes fundamental changes that go to the very core of a person's identity and reshapes all that they've understood to be true. I'm not sure if you've ever heard me give a sermon like that. I've definitely heard sermons like that from other people that convict me so deeply it, it changes who I am. Acts 2 describes this as piercing their hearts. Luke says Peter's message pierced their hearts, and that is a beautiful phrase because it really connects the events of the crucifixion in which Jesus' heart was literally pierced to the proper response to the crucifixion. It should pierce your heart. It should destroy you. It should affect you on some fundamental level. And since the kerygma is always presented as an appeal to logic, it is a reasonable argument. And it uses fulfilled prophecy and eyewitness experience. The crowd has no real reason to doubt Peter's words as true, especially because many of those there gathered in that crowd had seen Jesus' actions for themselves. So if Peter's words are true, and if these last days really are upon them, then they'd better find out what they have to do next. It's like when Angie says the girls can't go see LaShawn and Michaela until they clean their room. Suddenly there's a real interest in knowing what work needs to be done. Suddenly there's a real urgency to complete the task. Otherwise, they'll miss the good stuff. And it is good stuff. Peter mentions really good stuff. In fact, Peter tells them of two blessings they would receive that had been unfathomable, unfathomable, sorry. Peter tells them of two blessings they would receive that had been unfathomable and unattainable prior. Those two gifts being, as you can see here, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are no two blessings that humans are more unworthy to receive. Can you think of anything that you are less worthy to receive than forgiveness from God? Or the gift of his, of his presence coming and dwelling inside of you? Is there any gift that we deserve less? No. There isn't. No human has ever deserved these gifts, except one. Jesus, in case you were wondering who the one is, it's Jesus. And as Peter continues his sermon, he makes it clear that these gifts are not only available to those hearing that sermon. They are for you, he says, as in those listening, as well as your children, as well as those far away. They are gifts to pass on from generation to generation. Gifts that have no boundary of geography or gender, of wealth or worthiness. There is no boundary to these gifts. It's a gift offered to all, through all of time, and no one is too far away to receive the freedom of forgiveness or the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's so important, I'm going to say it again. No one is too far away to receive the freedom of forgiveness or the power and comfort of the Holy Spirit. But of course, these gifts are not free. They were paid for. First of all, they were purchased at great cost and great loss to the Father and His Son. There was a tremendous payment made to secure these gifts for us. But second of all, as Peter outlines here in Acts 2, we will only receive these great gifts, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, upon meeting these two related stipulations. 
The first is to repent, a beautiful word that the church needs to reclaim from the abusive, self-righteous, militant Christians who spit the word at whomever crosses their path as if it's a curse and not a requirement. Repent! 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 That message only means something if it's presented in love. And so this beautiful word, it's been tarnished a little bit in our society by people's view of it. But it need not be. It is a beautiful word. To repent is to have a complete spiritual change of heart and mind. It's a turning back towards God. It's a realignment of the soul. John the Baptizer prepared humanity for the arrival of the Son of God by calling for repentance. Since repentance is the necessary first step to salvation, you have to realize how wayward you are before you can return back to where you need to be. And with this inward change of heart and mind, which is repentance, comes an outward act of devotion and submission, and that is, number two, baptism. Repentance and baptism are sisters. They're related. Being baptized in Jesus' name is a public expression of repentance. The act of baptism is a portrait of repentance. It's a, it's a graphic display of leaving your former wayward self drowned and dead in a pool somewhere, and a new creation rising up, washed and prepared for service to the Lord, the Lord and Messiah, the real Lord and Messiah. And, as it says here, as Lord... Jesus has the right to demand that his people turn from their broken and ugly and selfish, sinful ways and be baptized in his name. He has every right to demand that of us. He is Lord. He can command whatever he wants. And this is, in particular, what he commands. But, also, as Messiah, he also has the right to bestow upon those who do obey him the wonderful gifts of his forgiveness and his Holy Spirit. He has the right to command, and he has the right to bless, and he does both. Now, before I move on, I want to comment quickly on the nature of baptism and salvation. I do not know the answer about whether or not you must undergo submersion in water for your salvation to be made complete. Don't know that answer. In the very next chapter of Acts, Acts 3, forgiveness of sins comes from repentance, but there is no act of baptism mentioned in that act of repentance. The most famous example of this is, of course, the, the criminal on the cross. I doubt the Romans gave him permission to come down from the cross and be baptized and then re-nailed back to the cross. I doubt that very much. So, I don't know how directly the tie is of baptism to salvation. However, baptism in water as an outward display of inward repentance is a crucial part of the Kerygma message. Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to make disciples and do What? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this, the first gospel sermon, Peter directs the new converts to be baptized in order to fully receive the gifts. Because of all this, I, I cannot urge you strongly enough that if you have not been baptized as a believing adult, conscious of your decision to turn from your former self and take on a new Christ-like identity, to please, please consider doing so. Baptism as an act will not save you. All sacred ceremonies must be accompanied by the appropriate state of humility, worship, and honesty. A baptism is a very personal thing, a very personal choice. But if you are unwilling to obey your Lord's clear command to be baptized in water as a willing adult, then I would suggest you should re-examine your definition of obedience, service, and lordship. What excuse do you have to not obey your Lord? 
Why would you want to jeopardize receiving the great gifts of your Savior? I don't teach this to make anyone feel guilty. I, I never, that's never ever my intention. But I think it's an honest question we need to ask ourselves that if you haven't been baptized as an adult choosing to do so, what excuse do you have? It's uncomfortable to be sure. It's a pretty bold public declaration to be sure. But it's also something that our Lord commanded us to do. So with that said, if anyone is interested in chatting about baptism with me, I'm always all ears for that conversation. There is nothing I love doing more as a pastor than weddings and baptisms. Love them. Some of you I have had the supreme honor and pleasure of, of baptizing. Actually, maybe just one of you. <laughs> maybe just one of you. So, baptism, it's a very important choice to make, and not making the choice is a choice. So here's the math. This is how I can sum it up. Oh, I don't have the math. I thought I had the math. I had a slide that just said, baptism equals important. That's the math. So just imagine that slide. So, with the requirements and the rewards in place, Peter has answered their urgent questions of what now? And what are the results? Well, even without a projector displaying sermon notes and fancy fonts behind him, and even without dedicated podcast subscriptions, and even without surveys spread around the temple to find out how effective his sermon was, without all that, somehow, miraculously, people responded. Lots of people, in fact, responded. 3,000 people believed and were baptized. More than ever followed Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. And about a hundred times more than ever attend Clyde Christian Battle Church on any given Sunday. More than ever followed Jesus during his lifetime. He wasn't kidding when he told his disciples in John 14 that they would do even greater things than him. Seemed unbelievable at the time, I'm sure. But here it is. It's 50 days after he was crucified, they're doing even greater things than him. And so the crowd, upon hearing Peter's sermon, asked, What should we do? At the end of Acts chapter 2, we're given a picture of what exactly they did, and we'll get there in a second. We see what the kingdom looks like when its servants give their lives fully to their Lord and Messiah. I didn't plan for this message to land on the Sunday when we have the congregational meeting talking about what we're going to do as a body. It just worked out that way, I promise. I didn't make that happen, but I'm really glad it worked out that way. It's remarkable how perfectly timed it is for the Holy Spirit to remind us what a community of believers can and should look like. Everything they did together, and that word together is absolutely crucial, everything they did together was a joyful response to their newfound gifts of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. In verse 42, Peter mentions four spiritual activities the early church devoted themselves to. That word devoted is a key word as well. They were totally committed to doing these things, and they were the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. So number one, the apostles' teaching. It's probably not surprising that a movement that cropped up around a rabbi who taught in new and transformative ways to fresh crowds throughout Judea and Galilee, and who gathered a small inner circle of 12 devoted learners and followers, would have as a central mark of identity an adherence to the teaching of those 12 followers. It's not surprising at all. They were all about teaching and learning. And so even with Jesus gone, it makes sense that that's the first thing they committed themselves to, teaching and learning, growing together. The apostles shared the authority of, of being eyewitnesses. 
So their words were revered in the same way that Moses and the prophets' words were revered in the Old Testament. And their, their eyewitness reports and their, their apostolic teachings were supported by the wonders and signs that they performed to the amazement and awe of, those, of all those who witnessed this movement unfold, as it says in verse 43. Though we don't know the content of their teaching, Acts is surprisingly light on teaching details during this period, so we don't know exactly what was taught, but we can guess that they held to the same dominant topics as the kerygma, and the same things that Jesus was so obsessed with teaching when he was on earth. Things like the historical events of Jesus' life and ministry, the commands and parables of Jesus, the nature of the kingdom, and the new ethics of a life submitted to their Lord and Messiah. Remember, they didn't the apostolic teachings aren't the New Testament. The New Testament came out of the apostolic teachings. So what did they teach? Well, they taught what eventually became the New Testament, safe to assume. So that's the first thing they were devoted to. The second was fellowship. And here's your Greek word nerd moment. I know you were waiting for it. Here it is. The word for fellowship is a lovely little word used only here by Luke. In all of Luke's writings, it's only used one time, and that's here. But it's a word that was very much favored by Paul. Paul loved this word. Marnie, what's the word? Koinonia. Koinonia. Um, I heard somebody else say it too. Trish, was that you? You know Greek, Trish? No, I just remember hearing the word. Yeah, it's a really great word. It literally just means sharing. It's a very simple word. Like all of these Greek words I'm teaching, they have a very simple meaning. Like what? Like money. Coin. coin. <laughs> yeah. It might actually be where we can get the word coin from. I don't know. Um, but in the regular Greek usage, it simply meant sharing, as in possessions. But the gospel, as with all these Greek words I'm teaching you, the gospel latched onto these words and gave this word extra depth, illustrating the unique sharing between Christians and God, as well as the unique sharing that happens between Christians and each other. Koinonia... Uh, represents intimacy, genuine concern, and cheerful giving. It is more than just companionship. It, it speaks to a bond that goes deeper than family. These are people who emptied their wallets and gave freely to meet any single need between any of its members. These are people bonded by a belief system that will get them lifted down and executed. These are people bonded by the shared understanding that, although they are guilty of their master's shed blood, they are also free to love their Creator and each other in extravagant ways because of their Master's shed blood. Fellowship doesn't really begin to capture the sense of what this word means, of what the early church was devoted to. Fellowship is almost too light of a word. It was koinonia. They were devoted to each other in every way. There was no need, no loneliness, no solitary suffering, no petty arguments that threatened to dissolve their unity. Does that mean that they always got along? That would be ridiculous to say. No, they are human people. There's no way they always got along all the time, no matter how filled with the Holy Spirit they were. But it does mean that their unity would not and could not be dissolved, because their unity was shaped through the harsh blacksmith's fire of love and persecution, hammered together by love and persecution. It was shaped by Jesus, and it answered Jesus' own prayer to his Father on the night before he died, in John 17, the night before he died, Jesus prays that his followers might be united even as Jesus was united to his Father. And this unity, this joyful sharing of all things, was called koinonia, fellowship. And it should be the goal of every church 
even when the survey suggests the pastor needs to work on it. Point in the end. It's okay. Some people said they're right. Number three. The third thing the followers devoted themselves to was another type of sharing, a very simple kind of sharing, and that was the sharing of broken bread. Luke is all about the table fellowship. As you remember, when we studied Luke for two years, how often did tables come up? Jesus was always teaching something important and showing love and grace to someone around a table. To share a table was an act of acceptance. It made you equals. It made you brothers and sisters. To welcome different people together was an act, another act of unity. But it's more than just a meal. Obviously, what does breaking bread represent? Sharing. Sharing. Yeah, it, it represents a very specific type of bread that was broken. And that's, what's that? The body of Jesus. Right. The Lord's Supper, communion. It was sharing. It was togetherness. It was koinonia. But it was purposeful. It had a specific intent. Here, the meal in mind is what we would call communion today. The breaking of bread to commemorate Jesus' broken body, shared with each other in an act of remembering and responding to that grace together. And then number four, prayers. Um, actually, the Greek translation is the prayers. I don't know what the prayers are, but I thought that was really cool. They were likely Jewish prayers, since those um, the Jewish prayers would have been familiar to these people. And the Jewish prayers would have lost none of their powerful truth. Even though they're Jewish, they also work for Jesus. We know from the next chapter, and actually from this chapter, that the believers hung out at the temple constantly. They were always around the temple. So they likely joined in with the prayers of the temple. Prayers that they knew. This makes sense, since prayer is nothing more than conversing with God boldly, as you would a friend. What set Christian prayer, apart from Jewish prayer, was this new and formerly blasphemous level of intimacy, where God could be addressed, as Jesus did, as Abba rather than the titles bearing more solemn respect. He wasn't just Yahweh. He wasn't just Adonai, Lord, Creator. He was now Abba, which, as you know, probably lots of you know, means Dad. You can call him Dad, as you would your own father. I can, I can address my Creator in the same way I would address Steve Lance. He's my, my dad, Paul. And that's what separates Christian prayer from Jewish prayer is this level of intimacy, this level of boldness, this, this affordability of approach. So, those are the activities that marked the followers of Jesus. I'm, I'm almost done, but I cannot, I cannot skip the important, this, this other important part. Because Luke goes on, noting their revolutionary new sense of kindness and commitment to one another. A sort of voluntary socialism, and I know that's a loaded term. It's also totally appropriate. So please don't, please don't lynch me. <laughs> it, it looks very much like socialism, except because they're sharing. It's, it's voluntary. They share for the good of all. And so this revolutionary new sense of kindness and commitment to one another, where joy and thankfulness lead to selfless love, this changed lives. Because of Jesus, possessions mattered less than the needs of others. Because of Jesus, people of various backgrounds were drawn together and made inseparable like human magnets. Because of Jesus, worship was a daily response rather than a weekly obligation. 
Because of Jesus, homes were transformed from places of private retreat to places of unified celebration. Because of Jesus, common events like mealtimes became glorious opportunities to extend kindness and graciousness and thanks. Because of Jesus, lives were changed together and lives were bonded together. Eternal life came to the kingdom in real time among them. Because of Jesus, and Jesus as made incarnate by these grace-filled, selfless, sacrificial men and women, Jesus as represented by the Holy Spirit living in these men and women. Because of Jesus, outsiders were drawn in and became insiders, and their reputation sparkled amongst all the people, and their numbers continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and spread. Sounds like a pretty sweet movement to be a part of, doesn't it? Well, the good news is, we are part of that movement. All of this is for us, and it is us. There's no reason our koinonia here in Clyde can't continue to grow in generosity and grace and impact. We, as Clyde Christian Bible Church, have to continue to ask the same question as the early church. What now? We have to ask that same question. What do we do now? If he is truly our Lord and Savior, can't we catch glimpses of the first church in ourselves? Of course we can. Can't we be devoted to good teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer? Of course we can. Can't we give selflessly to support one another? Of course we can. Can't we be filled with joy and thanksgiving and love and generosity as Jesus described in Luke 6? Giving everything you have, laying down your life for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. Can't we do that? Of course we can. Can't we be salt and light that welcomes outsiders in around the table and gives them good things to chew on? Of course we can. Can't we grow? Of course we can. Of course we already are. I see these things in us right now. This is not something that would be completely new to us. The Holy Spirit has been active in us since before we knew he was active in us as a church. And he's been doing this whether we like it or not. Because you can't be a church without at least sampling some of these things some of the time. Now, no church perfectly represents these things all of the time. But I absolutely see all of these things. I see Acts 2 in you. I do. I see how you give and how you share and how you pray. I see how you're unified together. All of these things are true of you. This meeting this afternoon begins with the idea that although, although Luke's... Sorry, let me start that whole thing. This meeting this afternoon begins with the idea that although Luke... <laughs> This meeting this afternoon begins with the idea that although Acts 2 is the ideal, that that ideal is already here, alive in us today, in this distant outpost of the kingdom. We are still the early church. The early church isn't something that's done with. We are still the early church. We are still in the beginning of the end times, as far as I know. We are still the early church. We are still fueled by the Spirit to carry our crosses and to carry each other. The gifts of Acts 2 are forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, but there's another beautiful gift that we are just as unworthy of, and that's each other. I don't deserve you guys. I don't deserve a church as great as you. None of We don't deserve each other. The support and the love and the faithfulness that we have, the koinonia that we have, we don't deserve that. It's a gift. 
and a beautiful gift. You are a beautiful gift. That said, we do still have work to do. Thankfully, we've got a group of brothers and sisters that we're proud to do that work alongside of. Acts 2 is, without a doubt, the clearest portrait of what a community of believers should look like. There's other glimpses of that, of that crop up in Acts, and Paul's writings, you think of his letter to the Corinthians and the Ephesians, they're all about what a church should look like and how it should function. But the best and clearest portrait, the most succinct portrait of what a church is, I think, is Acts 2. What do they do? They meet together, they teach, they share, they break bread, they enjoy one another's presence, they share sufferings together, they endure persecution together, they are a refuge for one another. It is koinonia, it's a beautiful word, and it's here, it's us, it, it's already present. There's maybe some tweaking that we can talk about this afternoon, some things that we can commit to working on further, but don't fool yourself. The Holy Spirit is here. You are the early church, and he is active in you as he was in Acts 2. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are in us and with us and around us. But thank you that you bless us with koinonia even today, that we can be unified in your name, Jesus. I pray that you would continue to shape us into a church body that looks like this ideal we have in Acts 2. Help us to commit further to prayer and to sharing what we have with one another, to enjoying each other's presence. But Father, we, we know that those things, you are already working those things in us. And whatever work we need to do as individuals, as part members of this body, help us to do them for your glory and for the sake of unity. You are good, Father. And I thank you for the portrait of the church we have in Acts 2, and I thank you mostly that even though we're not perfect, we already begin to look like this portrait. We pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys. I stopped doing it for a long time, but now is an appropriate time. I love you. I, I just love you guys. And uh, uh, I think old Pollock we know is going to be great. I think the meeting is also going to be great. So let's get the following.